Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's right. James chapter 2. I want us to look at verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, the second half of James chapter 2. James chapter 2 uh, seeks to answer what I think is perhaps the most pivotal, the most significant question uh, that is answered in this epistle. The question is simply this, what is saving faith? What is, what, what does saving faith look like? What is saving faith comprised of? Uh, many people try to use James 2, 14 through 26 as uh, that passage which places James and Paul in contradiction with each other. Uh, we, we, we said this when we started uh, this study in James, that there are those who like to uh, think of James and Paul as being uh, opposers to one another from the standpoint of theology with regard to their positional view uh, with what faith is. Paul lifts up constantly this idea that uh, you're saved by faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. James takes a different point of view, uh, not, not an opposing point of view, but a different perspective on the same thing. James' point of view is not that you are saved by works, but that because you're saved, you ought to work. Because you're saved, your life ought to look a certain kind of way. And, 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 and that's really the fundamental question of what is being dealt with here in these verses. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? I'm reading in case you didn't know what I was doing. Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand in glove. 
Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do to them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works and you get the same thing, a corpse. Good stuff. Interesting stuff. It's important that we understand that in order to really have a proper appreciation of what is saving faith, you cannot separate faith and works. You have to put the two together. Are we saved by works? No. Scripture makes it very clear. We are not saved by works. But are you saved by a faith where all you do is say praise the Lord, but you don't ever do anything to help anybody? James says, no, you are not. Are you going to come up to me with, with, with the thing, well, what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross didn't do any good works, but he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. And you were 100% absolutely right. You know what the problem was? The thief on the cross couldn't do nothing else. He was dying. He's dying. If you can do something else, he ought to do something else. You can't use the thief on the cross unless you are in your last breath. And some of y'all trying to wait to the last possible minute. I got any more breath left. Okay, I believe now. And then you can die. No, that's not the way it works. There must be a synthesis between saving faith and works that are evidence of that salvation. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew. Chapter 7. And I want you to look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. I always like to say, whenever I have the opportunity to do so, I like going to the source. Paul is a source. James is a source. Jesus is the source. So whenever I have the opportunity to, to, to go to Jesus, I like going 
to Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. This is Jesus speaking. Knowing the correct password, I'm reading from the message version, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preach the message. We bash the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You are out of here. So, Jesus makes it clear that there has to be some synthesis between what we say and what we do. You can't do without having a faith and think that just doing is enough. And you can't say that you have faith, but then never act upon the faith that you say you have. There must be, if you don't walk out of here with anything else, walk out of here with this. There must be synthesis between faith and action. And where there is no synthesis, then there is no genuine saving faith. James is not disputing that we are saved by faith alone. Rather, he's dealing with the question, what does saving faith look like? Yeah. Is it just a matter of us saying it, or is it something more? And his answer is, saving faith necessarily results in a life of good works, whereas fake faith does not. You got a president who loves to use the word fake, right? Everything is fake news, fake this, fake that. Well, some folk practice fake faith. And since it's alliterative, I can borrow it. Fake faith. That is where we act like we believe something. We say we believe something. But when it comes down to actually standing on what we say we believe, we don't do it. So, in order to, 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 to avoid that, James says we have to do something else. As we go through the passage that I've already read, I want you to think and, and, and keep four things in mind. Number one, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That's three alones in one statement. We are saved by grace alone. What is grace? God's unmerited favor. In other words, you ain't so cute, you ain't so handsome, you ain't so smart, you ain't so sharp, you aren't so intelligent that you're saved. You are saved solely by God's grace. You are saved through faith alone. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. And you are saved in Christ alone. You don't need anything more no. than Jesus in order to be saved. That's number one. Number two, 
There is such a thing as a false faith which does not save. And more often than not, many of us are guilty of that false faith where we act like it, but don't really. This thing that I hear people say all the time, fake it until you make it. Find me that somewhere in the scripture. I've never seen it, and, and, and I'm open to being corrected, but I don't believe that it exists anywhere in the Bible where it says, fake it, until, or, or anything that, that suggests, fake it until you make it. What we do is we act on what we believe, and if we are having trouble believing, we ask God to help us by strengthening our belief. Do you remember the passage of Scripture in, I think it's Mark chapter 9, where uh, Jesus comes down off the mountain of transfiguration and he finds uh, a man with his son who has been uh, convulsing and going into seizures. And he brought the man looking for Jesus, couldn't find Jesus, found the disciples and asked the disciples to help the man. The disciples tried to help the man, but they could not. And Jesus comes along and, 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 and the man says, well, I came to your disciples, and, but they couldn't help. But, it, but if you can do it, anything. I want you to help my son. And Jesus jumped on the word if and says, uh, uh, what do you mean by if? Do, do you believe in who I am? Do you believe that I have the power to save your son? And the man says, th says something that sounds duplicitous. He says, I do believe. And the very next thing out of his mouth, help me with my unbelief. That's us. More often than not, that's us. We say we believe, but we need help with our unbelief. If we're honest with ourselves, we, 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 we say we believe, we want to believe, but sometimes doubt creeps in. Sometimes we, 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 we're just beset with, with questions and, and concerns and troubles. And so, in those moments when doubt seems to creep in, our response needs to be, yes, Lord, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. In those little nooks and crannies where I'm having trouble, in those spaces where, where I want to, to, to hold on, but I'm having difficulty in doing so, help me with my unbelief. Where we don't ask for the help is where we get into trouble. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. Peter says, if that's really you, let me come out to where you are. Jesus says, come on, get on out of the boat. Come, 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 come to where I am. Peter gets out of the boat. Peter is standing on water. That's pretty good, isn't it? Then he took his eyes off Jesus. And when he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. Thank God he had sense enough to realize what was going on. And he says, Lord, save me. That has to be us. Don't be so proud. Don't be so full of you that you ain't got sense enough to say, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. 
I want to believe. I'm trying to believe. I'm clinging to belief. But belief is having difficulty today. Today I'm in a tough spot. Today I'm in a rough situation. Today I'm having problems. So I need help, Lord, with my belief. If we don't do that, then, then, then we're guilty of number two. And that is a fake faith, a false faith, which does not save. Number three, the faith that does not save is a mere profession that does not result in a life of good deeds. If we have been saved, then evidence of that salvation should be transformed living. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all has become new. Paul says in, in, in your Sunday school lesson this coming Sunday, if, if I'm not mistaken, Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that renewing takes place when we learn how to stand on our faith and allow it to transform our behavior. And part of the transformed behavior is the things that used to be important just ain't that important anymore. Things that, 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 that we thought were, 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 were the thing. Once I get this, have you ever gotten something that you waited a long time for and once you got it and you thought everything is going to be great from now on and five minutes after you had it, you're starting to think about something else. This thing ain't as great as I thought it was. That's, that, 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 that's part of the, the problem. We, we fixate on things rather than fixating on the one who gives us what we have. If our focus is on Christ, then it doesn't matter what else we have. Christ covers everything else. And so our faith in Christ transforms us to a place where we recognize what is truly important and what is not important. Number four, the faith that does not save may be doctrinally correct, but results in no change of heart or behavior or anyone else around us. It doesn't result in a change of heart, it doesn't result in a change in behavior, and it doesn't result in a change of anyone else around us. Let's remember something. One of, the, one of the reasons why we have been called into salvation is not just for our benefit, but so that we can work in the lives of others to help them become transformed as well. Can we save anyone? No. But can we point people to the one who saves? Absolutely. Let your light so shine before men and women that they will see your good work and give glory to your Father in heaven. Part of, part of the salvation process is not just a matter of us being saved, but of us being those that point others to the one who saves. 
and that's Jesus Christ. If we don't do that, then we're not doing what we have been called to do. We're failing to maximize our potential. The principle stated in this passage is found in verse 14. The principle is this. Faith that is professed but not practiced is of no practical value to us or to others. It does not serve. It does not save. Therefore, it is useless. Faith that does not serve is useless. Faith that does not save is useless. Faith that does not serve nor save is twice useless. And, and, and so to profess something that has no structure to it, no foundation to it, no meat to it, is just sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. Y'all like reading Paul. Y'all love Paul so much. If, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have any love, he says it's just sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. When Paul used the word love, James is using the word faith. James gives us an example of this useless faith. He says, you run across somebody who's in great need, doesn't have proper clothing, and they're hungry. And instead of doing something to provide for what they need, what you say is, well, I'll be praying for you. The Lord's going to give you what you need by and by. Well, the Lord gave them what they needed. The Lord sent you by. And, 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 and then it becomes a matter of, are you willing to expand the borders of your reach beyond your circle in order to meet the need that has been presented to you? Sometimes we're not willing to do that. Sometimes we like the platitude. But what James wants us to see is that what we say with our mouths is a sampling of what is in our hearts. So if our words are empty, it's an indication that our hearts are empty. Anybody can say the right stuff. All you got to do is hang around folk who've been doing it a long time. I walk into this office every day, and, 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 and when I go into the, the, the office to speak to folk, they say, how you doing today? And I say, fair to Midland. <laughs> now, where did I get fair to Midland from? Your grandma. My grandmother. <laughs> Hattie Smith. That, 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 that was her response. Fair to Midland. P people will ask me, what does fair to Midland mean? Means I ain't that bad, ain't that great. I'm, I'm right down. But, but that phrase comes from the woman who raised me. I 
I learned it listening to her and without even knowing that she was putting that imprint in my mind. She's been dead since 1980. And here I am, what is that, 39 years later? Still saying fair to me? You hang around church for long enough, you get to know all the, the church words. What to say? How you doing today? I'm saved and sanctified and heaven bound. Too blessed to be stressed. Everything's gonna be all right. Is it just a phrase? Is it just a saying? Or do we really mean what we say? Are they just empty words? James says, if all they are are words and there's nothing to back the words up, it's empty. It has no value. It doesn't help anyone. In fact, it's harmful. Because if you tell somebody who's cold and hungry, I hope you get warm and I hope you find some food, but you don't do anything to help them get warm or to help them find some food, then their attitude toward church folk is that they all talk, no action. James says it's a dangerous thing because you are setting a, a, a stage for people who are already skeptical of church folk to support their skepticism. Remember a few months back, when we were dealing with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and I talked about when Abraham goes down into Egypt and uh, uh, he, he tells Sarah to lie to, to cover for the fact that, that he, he's afraid that if they find out that she's his wife, they'll kill him. And, 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 and so she, she engages in the lie. They take Sarah, and then Pharaoh finds out that he lied, and he brings Sarah back, and he puts Abraham out of Egypt says, take your wife, take your household, take all your stuff, and get out of here. It's a bad thing when we give the world and worldly folk the opportunity to scold the church. When by our behavior, the world can stand up and justifiably say, them church folk, they really ain't what they all crack themselves up to be. Part of, part of, and I, I shouldn't say our, I'll say my, part of my concern right now is, is us church folk, us, uh, uh, us evangelical folk who are supporting a person, a party, and an agenda that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, 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 we are telling the world that we love Jesus and we love what Jesus stands for, but we're going to support somebody who stands for everything that Jesus was opposed to. Forget about your, your, your feelings about the most recent issue abortion, because I'm sure that there are any number of feelings in here about that. Just deal with the poor and the marginalized. 
Just deal with how the current administration is responding to poor and marginalized people. And remember that Jesus said, I came for the poor and the marginalized. I came to give liberty to the poor and the marginalized. I came to set the captive free. And yet the church or a portion thereof is standing up in support of a person and a party and an agenda that is opposed to the poor and the marginalized, who in fact want to keep the poor and the marginalized poor and marginalized. It gives the world, and I watch the news every day, all day. Really, I watch the news way too much. But, but, but it gives the world the opportunity to say, what's wrong with them church folk? What, what has gotten into these church folk? Have they read what the Bible actually says? Or are they simply following an agenda that they think, that they think will suit them in the end? James says, empty words are reflective of empty hearts. And an empty heart doesn't just say something about you. It says something about the God that you represent. And then then he goes on to say, now I I can hear some of y'all saying, you take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. He says, but, 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 but you can't separate the two. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith fit together hand and glove. It's not right to assume that my profession of faith carries more weight to it if there are no works to support it. And it is not right to assume that your works carry weight if there's no faith behind it. Let's be clear. There are people who do good things who don't believe in Jesus. If you think that all the good stuff that's being done is being done by folk who believe in Jesus, you need to wake up. You've been asleep way too long. There are a whole lot of folk who do good things who don't believe in Jesus, don't serve Jesus. Don't, don't believe in the church or what the church says. Don't believe in a plan of salvation. And some people say, well, I don't care. As long as I get the good, I don't care where it, where it comes from. Well, I care where it comes from. Because people who do good for their own agenda will only do good as long as it suits their agenda. The moment their agenda changes, the good will change. Back about, what was it, 10, 12 years ago, when, when, when the second George Bush was in office and, and he was talking about a faith-based uh, agenda and, and, and giving money to faith-based organizations. And a lot of folk took that faith-based money and they said, we can do good things with that faith-based 
money coming from the government. There were folk who were standing up saying, be careful of that. Be, 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 be careful of getting too much in, in the company of the federal government with that faith-based agenda. And they're saying, well, this is money that can help us do ministry. And they were right. It was money that could help them do ministry until the money was no longer there. And then the ministries had to go away. And then there were ministries that had to dry up, had to close up, had to lock up because the agenda changed. And when the agenda changed, the money went away. The church was never meant to be supported by the government. No. No. You know who's supposed to support the church? That wasn't a hard question. <laughs> Do you know who's supposed to support the church? The church is. Your tithes, your offerings are supposed to support the work of the church. And, and, and when we look to others to do what we are supposed to be doing, we are abdicating our responsibility. These two things must work together. Faith and works must work together. And it is the hypocrite who suggests that he is saved based solely on his profession of belief, but without support of works. And it is the hypocrite who says, all I have to do is work, and it doesn't matter what I believe. Here's the difference. One knows he's a hypocrite, and the other one doesn't. And I'm here to let you know both of them are hypocrites. The ones who are just about work, I think they know that, 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 that there's hypocrisy in what they are doing. But the one who, who spouts all the platitudes but ain't willing to do nothing, sometimes I think they, they forget that all they are doing is, is talking, but they're not acting. Well, then James moves into a place where he gives examples to help us to understand what it is that we're guilty of. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works? when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar. Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God not by a barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Chapter 15. Look at the first six verses. 
After all these things, this word of God came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be grand. Abram said, God, Master, what use are your gifts as long as I'm childless? And Eleazar of Damascus is going to inherit everything. Abram continued, See, you've given me no children, and now a mere house servant is going to get it all. Then God's message came, Don't worry, he won't be your heir. A son from your body will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, Look at the sky, count the stars. Can you do it? Count your descendants. You're going to have a big family, Abram. And he believed, believed God. God declared him set right with God. Do you see that? All right. Turn over to Hebrews. Chapter 11, starting with verse 17. By faith, Abraham, at the time of testing, offered Isaac back to God, acting in faith. Do you see that? Acting in faith. Acting in faith. He was as ready to return the promised son, his only son, as he had been to receive him. And this after he had already been told, your descendants shall come from Isaac. Abraham figured that if God wanted to, he could raise the dead. In a sense, that's what happened when he received Isaac back alive from off the altar. The point is clear. Abraham is justified by faith, not only in that he believed what God said, but that he was obedient to God's instruction. Some of us want to believe what God says to us, but we don't want to follow God's instruction to us. And my point is, and James' point is, you can't have one without the other. How do you know that you're saved? Because Jesus says so. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to offer his life as a ransom for many. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. How do you know that you are saved? Because Jesus said so. And all the people said, Amen. All the people said, Praise the Lord. The people said, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm saved. You told me I'm saved. You died on a Friday, but early on a Sunday morning, you secured my salvation. And we're all happy about that. By faith. That's how we know we're saved. Well, what happens to the faith when he tells us to do stuff that we don't want to do? Because the same one who said God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Same one. 
Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that use you and persecute you. Same one who said he came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Said as often as he sins against you, he, she, it, them, they, as often as they sin against you, you're obligated to forgive them. Same one. So if you're going to claim the salvation yes. based upon the fact that he said it, yes. he said it, I believe it, that settles it. Does it really? Does it settle it for everything? Bible says Abraham was given a promise. Eleazar will not be your heir. An heir is going to come from your seed. And from that seed, all nations on the earth, a nation is going to come. And Abraham believed. And Abraham was made right with God because he believed. Well, Abraham also believed when God told him, take your son, take him up on a mountain, and offer him as a sacrifice. Bible says that when God told Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain, Abraham offered no argument. He offered no rebuttal. He offered no excuse. He asked for no delay. He simply did what God said do. So if you want to claim that you have the faith of Abraham, I'm just curious. When God says, bless those who curse you, do you put up a delay? I'm working on it, Lord. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. Don't we like singing that? When God gets through with me, I've been working on you since 1937. <laughs> when he gets through with me, it's funny how we're so quick to embrace one thing, but so willing to put off the other. The writer of Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham acted. By faith, he acted. By faith, he acted. He heard what God said, and he was willing to respond. The question for us, the question that James is asking his readers, and, and by virtue of the fact that it's in our scripture, the question he's asking us is, how quick are we to act on what we hear? Or is it just the stuff that we like? Is it just the stuff that suits us? Is it just the stuff that, that, that helps us or, or we believe helps us? Do you know that it helps you when you are obedient to God, even when God asks you to do things that are hard? Let's not pretend. Loving your enemy is not easy. It's not. Anybody who says it is ain't never tried it. Loving your enemy is not easy. Blessing those who have cursed you is not easy. Doing good to them, to, to, to them who have hated you is not easy. Turning the other cheek, 
is not easy. Walking the second mile is not easy. Giving up your coat when they sued you for your cloak is not easy. I am not suggesting that it is easy, but it is in the ability to be obedient to the hard things that God asks us to do, that our faith finds its true vitality. That's where our faith finds its true strength. In the ability to say, I don't want to do it. What is it that we love Jesus for? On the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, he stretches out on the ground and sweat like great drops of blood fall from his brow. And he says, for all of us, if it be possible, let this cup pass. You and I would put it another way. It ain't right, Lord. <laughs> this just ain't right. It ain't fair. I ain't done nothing to deserve what's about to happen to me. If you was a good God, you'd find another way for me to do this. He speaks for all of us because what he's being asked to do is a hard thing. But he doesn't stop with let this cup pass. There's a nevertheless that comes behind it. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. You want to know where faith finds its true power? In your ability to say nevertheless. They ain't been right to me my entire life. <coughs> nevertheless. They look for ways to hurt me. <coughs> nevertheless. They talk about me behind my back. They have taken food off my table. Nevertheless, they gang up on me. I see them out there in the parking lot talking when I walk out. They gang up on me. Nevertheless, the true strength of our faith is not in the if it be possible. It's in the nevertheless. Abraham does not wait. But as soon as God offers him up, tells him what to do, Abraham is willing to do it. Faith has to respond and work. That's not the only example that he gives. Look at verse 25. The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. Turn your Bibles to Joshua. 
chapter 2. Chapter 2. To verse... We'll start with verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, we've just learned that men arrived tonight to spy out the land. They're from the people of Israel. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you to stay the night in your house. They're spies. They've come to spy out the whole country. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, two men did come to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dark, when the gate was about to be shut, the men left, but I have no idea where they went. Hurry up, chase them, you can still catch them. She had actually taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that were spread out for her on the roof. So the men set chase down the Jericho Road toward the fords. As soon as they were gone, the gate was shut. Now, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We were just in Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 31. Hebrews 11, 31. By an act of faith, Rahab, the Jericho harlot, welcomed the spies and escaped the destruction that came on those who refused to trust God. I want that to sink in for, for us. I got six minutes. I could take three to let that sink in. I want that to sink in for just a second. We read in Joshua chapter 2 what Rahab did. What did Rahab do? How did she save two spies? What else did she do? She lied. I, I was waiting on somebody. It took, it took three times before somebody said She lied. She lied. She said they went that way. And if you run real fast, you can catch them. She lied. But the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, she was spared the destruction that came to the rest of the city. Did you catch that? I don't expect you to, 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 to say amen too quick, but I do want you to see it. And I want you to see it for yourself so that you won't say he said it. The text says she lied. And the text says that her lie was an act of faith that allowed her to be spared. Really? You, you, you strict fundamentalists, you legalists, who, who, who think that everything is black and white. I tell y'all all the time, life is not black and white. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And there ain't no difference between that. Yes, 
if lying is wrong and Rahab is spared because she lied, what you gonna do with that? If her lie is called faith, and that's what the text says, what you gonna do with that? How you gonna reconcile that? Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Yeah, but she lied. And her lie was credited to her as faith and righteousness. Thou shalt not bear false witness against. Yeah, but she lied. And her lie was credited to her as faith and righteousness. Quit thinking that you know everything. Quit thinking that you've got God all figured out. Quit thinking that you know the answer to everything. If nothing else, you're going to walk out of here saying, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you don't want to know. The text says she lied. And both James and the writer of Hebrews say that her lie, her actions, accounted for, to her as faith and righteousness. As my sister used to say when I was a child, put that in your pipe <laughs> and smoke it. Got one final thing. I got two minutes left. One, 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 one final thing. James' primary point here is consistency. Yeah. He says it's not enough to say something if you're not willing to follow up what you say with activity that supports it. He's, I told you when we started this study, James is not a theological scholar. He, he, he's not Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was steeped in Scripture. Paul knew Scripture backward and forward. And he uses the Scripture to weave a theological uh, perspective on Christianity that James couldn't begin to do. But what James doesn't have in formal education, James has in common sense. And common sense, James says, it don't mean nothing if all you're doing is talking it. And you ain't walking it. If you're going to talk it, walk it. If you can't walk it, stop talking it. Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Godfather 3. There's a lot of theology in the Godfather. Uh, keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Uh, never hate your enemy. It affects your judgment. Never tell the people outside the family what you're thinking. Uh, I, I have derived a lot of my 
theology, and of course I, I call it theology, but a lot of my philosophy on life uh, comes from, from those movies. And, and it's not, people who really watch The Godfather will know it's really not a gangster movie. It, it, it talks about gangsters. It's really a movie about family. It's a movie about commitment to family and the lengths to which one will go to protect his family. And uh, when you look at it from that point of view, not the violence and all that other stuff, but when you look at it from the point of view that it's actually about a family trying to progress and do the very best that they can, uh, uh, there's a lot of wisdom to be found in those movies. But if you ask me for the top three, it's not hard for me at all. Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Godfather 3. Michael Corleone, he's my guy. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes of all time in, in, in the movies. Uh, uh, Michael was a guy who reluctantly fell into a, 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 a position uh, within the family that he never really anticipated would be his. He had an older brother uh, and, and he always felt like uh, the position of patriarch of the family after his father would fall to his older brother, but his older brother uh, is killed. And, and uh, he, his other brother is actually older, but uh, he didn't show any signs of, of ability to lead the family. And so leadership of the family fell upon him and thrust with that responsibility, even though he didn't want it, he recognized that he had the tools and the courage to do what needed to be done. And once he accepted that that was his role, uh, he embraced it with everything that he had within him and he did it to the very best of his ability. And he didn't matter who got in his way, he was going to protect his family no matter what. I, I, I find great strength in that. It's, it's not exactly the same as, as my own story. I do, I do have an older brother, uh, uh, but uh, it, there was never a question that uh, uh, this life uh, ministry was never on his agenda. Uh, so it, it's not like uh, it, it bypassed one and fell to the other in that regard. But uh, the similarities, uh, that, uh, that, that the commonality that I feel with Michael Corleone has to do with the fact that uh, something was thrust upon him and he felt like he had to embrace it. And he knew that he could do it even though it was not something that he necessarily wanted to do.